Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Ayelle, and I too would like to welcome all of you to today's Cancer Care Workshop Update on Advanced Ovarian Cancer. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other organizations, uh, cancer organizations, and we also um, also have on the call um, ovarian cancer organizations, the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition, the Ovarian Cancer Research Fund Alliance, and SHARE. So we have a number of organizations also that are specific to ovarian cancer who helped us spread the word about the program today. And because of all of this collaboration and your interest in the program, we have on the call today over 514 participants. And you mostly come to the United States, but we also do have international participants from Canada, India, Japan, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So it's a bit of a global call, um, and I really appreciate all of you taking this time to listen in on today's program. Now, today's program was made possible by Clovis Oncology, Inc., and I really want to thank them for the support of this program. Indeed, um, the support of this program is really um, essential to being able to offer this program, and we, we really want to thank them for their support. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker um, is Dr. Kellen Runowitz. Dr. Runowitz is Executive Associate Dean for Academic Affairs. Um, Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Florida International University, Herbert Wertheim College of Medicine. And Dr. Ronowitz is going to be addressing an overview of ovarian cancer, therapy options for current and advanced ovarian cancer, understanding germline or heritable BRCA1 and 2 and somatic or acquired mutations, and clinical trial updates. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Ronowitz. Thank you. I'm delighted to be part of this impressive group of speakers. Thanks for including me. So in the overview of ovarian cancer, it's important to note that it is the second most common gynecologic malignancy. Most of these cancers are epithelial or high-grade serous carcinomas, and I know that Dr. Kerr, who is later on the panel, will expand on the pathology. Most patients undergo primary, that is first line, cytoreductive or debulking surgery as primary treatment. However, neoadjuvant therapy, which is where chemotherapy or biologic therapy is given first, may be chosen based on the volume of disease as estimated by CAT scan or PET scan, the presence of ascites, or based on the gynecologic oncologist determining that the patient may not tolerate the surgical procedure, say for a medical reason, um, unstable patient. If neoadjuvant chemotherapy is chosen as the treatment plan, surgery is usually delayed for three to six cycles. Bevacizumab, which is part now of the treatment of ovarian cancer, may be withheld prior to a surgical treatment because of wound healing issues. The goal of surgery is to achieve minimal residual disease, and that's defined as less than one centimeter. So to have that best performed, surgery should be done by a gynecologic oncologist with a high volume of cases as many studies have shown that the gynecologic oncologist training and the volume of cases is important in establishing better outcomes. The treatment phase for advanced ovarian cancer, a clinical trial should always be considered. It's important to ask your physician, are there any clinical trials or, and I'll go into this a little bit later, going on to the websites of where you can find the clinical trials. If there is minimal residual disease, intraperitoneal chemotherapy should be considered, and if it's not offered, the patient should ask, why are you not offering intraperitoneal chemotherapy, and am I a candidate for intraperitoneal chemotherapy? 
Treatment may also include bevacizumab, which is the anti-angiogenesis agent, based on several randomized clinical trials by large cooperative groups, both in the United States and in international groups. Another first-line regimen is dose-dense or weekly paclitaxel and carboplatin. In the face of recurrent ovarian cancer, again, a clinical trial should be considered. It's incumbent that the patient ask, are there any clinical trials that I might be considered for? We traditionally break down recurrent ovarian cancer into that which is therapy-free interval of six months, or in the old days, platinum-sensitive, which meant at least six months of a platinum-free interval. We now use therapy-free interval because there are other drugs that are often given that are not platinum, and so we're st we still measure it as, as therapy-free interval. And personally, I think the platinum-free interval is also important. So in those patients who are platinum-sensitive, the OCEANS trial, which was bevacizumab, gemcitabine, and carboplatin, showed improved survival with bevacizumab as opposed to those patients who just got the chemotherapy. In platinum resistance, um, which is um, usually the um, disease recurs within um, six months of therapy, there have been several trials that have shown encouraging results. The Aurelia trial showed bevacizumab with a single agent, and the single agents were either topotecan Taxol or Doxol. Other agents are gemcitabine. The endocrine therapies have been used in some patients who show estrogen and progesterone receptors. The PARP inhibitors, um, if there are germline or somatic mutations showing homologous recombinant deficiency in DNA repair, and I'll get into the mutations a little bit more. Tumors can be tested for somatic, that is sporadic mutations, which are different than germline or inherited mutations. Sarah Ewing will discuss genetic counseling and testing options, as there are many uh, to consider. The pathologist is a key team member in establishing the diagnosis and in doing molecular testing to determine mutations, estrogen receptor status, progesterone receptor status, and what we call driver mutations, which are actionable. And that means that they, there is something that we can use to determine treatment. So an estrogen receptor, for example, you might choose an anti-estrogen, much like in breast cancer. Dr. Kerr will review the role of the pathologist, and Dr. Vonner Hendrickson will discuss the role of precision medicine in ovarian cancer, where she'll talk about these actionable mutations and how we target them. And lastly, on clinical trials, updates are presented at large meetings, including the American Society of Clinical Oncology, the American Association of Cancer Research, as well as specialty meetings, for example, the Society of Gynecologic Oncology. Many of these abstracts are online and open to the public. Enrollment in clinical trials, which I mentioned before, is key to progress, improved diagnosis, treatment, and survival. Cancer.gov, where you can find a clinical trial and you can specifically look for ovary, the stage of disease, or the recurrent um, disease category, and many, many trials will show up. The site is easier to use if you have a patient navigator, which many cancer centers have. The American Cancer Society at cancer.org gives information about clinical trials and has a clinical trials matching service, which makes it a little bit easier for um, the patient to navigate which trials might be appropriate. Uh, so that was kind of a quick overview um, of my topic. I'd like to thank you very much, Dr. Ronowitz. Dr. Ronowitz, that was an outstanding presentation. And um, as Dr. Ronowitz had mentioned, we have quite a 
um, multidisciplinary team. Our next speaker is a medical oncologist, but she'll be followed by a pathologist and then a genetic counselor and then an oncology social worker. So you're going to have the entire, pretty much the entire team um, kind of talking to you today, and that can be very helpful. Our next speaker is Dr. Um, Andrea Vonner-Hendrickson. Dr. Vonner-Hendrickson is a medical oncologist, Mayo Clinic Cancer Center, assistant professor of oncology and pharmacology, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. And Dr. Von Hendrickson will address the role of precision medicine in informing treatment decisions, new treatment approaches and follow-up care, controlling side effects, symptoms, discomfort and pain, and talking with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Von Hendrickson. Thank you very much for including me in this exciting event. So I'm very happy to be a part of this and um, I will be discussing a couple of topics. It's going to be quick, but we do have time for questions at the end. So the first topic that I'm going to discuss is the role of precision medicine in treatment decisions. So in order to really understand this, we have to know what precision medicine is. And basically what precision medicine is, is tailoring the treatment based on kind of the characteristics of the patient or the patient's tumor. So we are really looking at specific changes, molecular changes in a specific tumor and trying to find a therapy that would best work for that tumor. So um, as Dr. Ronovich uh, really nicely explained, our first-line therapy still is going to be a combination of surgery and standard chemotherapy that we have shown efficacy for. So we know that this is our, a good first-line therapy, and so oftentimes precision medicine um, gets started a little bit later. That being said, there is a lot of exciting um, data and information about the role of PARP inhibitors, which is a new class of drugs that was recently FDA approved, and we are moving this closer and closer to first-line um, therapy, and it's in clinical trials for new diagnosis patients, and so it looks very promising. And so these kind of precision medicine types of treatments are moving um, closer to at the time of diagnosis. So it's an exciting time um, for all of us. But in order for um, the precision medicine to be done, the tumor needs to be analyzed. So your physician may talk to you about getting your tumor tested for specific changes that, that they, they can then make treatment recommendations for. And so if that is something that you are interested in, it's also um, a good idea to just talk to your uh, uh, oncologist or your surgeon about you know, what, what can we do? Can we test my tumor? What are my options? There are a lot of different ways to get the tumor tested, and so this will be a discussion between you and your healthcare team. And so that kind of segues into new treatment approaches and follow-up care. And so this precision medicine has really made an impact on how we treat patients because now we can look at specific mutations and really target some of our therapies um, based on what we see um, in, the, in the tumor itself. That being said, a lot of this is still considered experimental because we don't have a lot of data in terms of um, how well this is going um, to work for specific tumors. And so a lot of times this is done through clinical trials. And as you heard earlier, it's really important to ask about clinical trial options and look into clinical trial options because this is where all the new therapies come from. They come from clinical trials and come from dedicated um, families and patients like yourselves looking into how can we improve our treatment. And so it is really important to look at clinical trials. Um, a couple of websites were already mentioned. Clinicaltrials.gov is another good website that will list all of the clinical trials. And there's a great clinical trial out now, a broad trial called the MATCH trial, which is really taking tumor biopsies, looking at mutations, and, and kind of partnering um, that tumor with a um, with a treatment that, that looks like it would be a good quote-unquote match. Um, in terms of other new approaches for ovarian cancer, we had mentioned briefly the role of PARP inhibitors, and this will be discussed a little bit more in terms of why we're interested in PARP inhibitors, um, because they do seem to be really effective in patients 
um, that have a BRCA mutation or mutations in that pathway. And so that will be discussed a little bit later on as well in talking about BRCA testing. Um, there's also a lot of interest in you know, immunotherapy in ovarian cancer, and that is harnessing the immune system to try to fight the ovarian cancer. And so it is a time where we're having a lot of new options for people, and it's really important to have an open discussion with your um, team about possible options, uh, because there are usually a lot of options and not just one right answer. In terms of follow-up care, so when you complete your, your, you know, your surgery, your chemotherapy, you are followed closely by your medical team. And so often for the first two years, you're followed every two to four months. And during those visits, it's usually a discussion about how are you feeling, how are you doing. Um, and a good pelvic exam is um, performed at those visits or should be performed at those visits. And then after two years, it moves to every um, six months or so. And then at five years, it's um, annual follow-up. And so at those visits, like I said, it's mainly physical exam history. If you were diagnosed and you had an elevated CA-125 or a, um, a uh, blood marker, that, that is oftentimes followed. Um, and then also in that meeting, it's also important to talk to your healthcare team about overall wellness, how are you doing, um, kind of long-term side effects from chemotherapy, if you're having any of those, how can they be addressed? So that kind of leads into the last section, which is really looking at controlling side effects and symptoms, as well as talking to your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. And I think this is of utmost importance. Your team needs to know how you are feeling and how, are you, how you are doing on your therapy. If you don't tell them how you're feeling, they're not going to know. And it is really important because your healthcare team wants to make sure that you are living the best quality of life as possible. We're aware that unfortunately chemotherapy has a lot of side effects, but there are a lot of treatment options. There are a lot of things that we can do to help make your life better. And it is important that we really understand what you are struggling with because that we can make treatment decisions and changes based on that. And so um, it, it also is beneficial for you to share this with the healthcare team because it, it, some of these side effects can be long-term side effects if they're not addressed up front. And so I know sometimes um, women are scared or nervous to talk about side effects because they feel that, they, that it may make them feel less strong or that maybe the treatment will be abbreviated and they won't get the best treatment if they talk about these side effects, and that's not true. We really need to know how you are doing with the treatment because there are so many things that we can do to make um, the chemotherapy and the treatments more tolerable. And so um, I do recommend every time you meet with your healthcare team, tell them what you're feeling, tell them how you're doing. If you develop a new symptom while you're not at the clinic, obviously give your healthcare team a call. There is also in some, um, some areas a really great group of physicians, and we use them very frequently. It's a, a team called Palliative Care. Now, this is an organization or a group of physicians that are really interdisciplinary, and they focus on preventing and relieving suffering. Um, and improving quality of life. And so this can be in a curative situation. You know, these are, these are physicians that are really focusing on, okay, we want to make sure that, you know, these patients that are going through whatever treatment are living as well as possible. And so they have great ideas in terms of if you're having problems with energy, how can we improve energy level? How can we improve appetite? Um, you know, how can we improve your sleep? Are you having pain somewhere? How can we best address the pain? Sometimes, you know, I think it's really important to, to think of your healthcare team as as many people as possible um, and really to think of it as a team. And so your oncologist may be kind of in charge of the chemotherapy. Your surgeon is really, you know, kind of in charge of the surgery. And your palliative care team is in charge of making sure you're, you know, tolerating the chemotherapy as well. So if you do have access to a palliative care team, I would highly um, recommend it because they are great and have some great ideas in terms of making the uh, chemotherapy more, more tolerable. It's also really important um, 
to um, also think about your well-being overall, um, trying to get a little bit of exercise in as tolerated, trying to eat well within, you know, the confines of, you know, what um, what tastes good to you, what's tolerated. But those things are really important and should be discussed with the team um, as well. And so I'll be happy to take any questions um, at the end of this session. Thank, so thank you so you. much. Uh, thank, thank you so much, uh, that was outstanding, um, Dr. Avrana Hendrickson, and I actually um, look forward to um, questions for you also during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker um, is Dr. Sarah Kerr. Dr. Kerr is a pathologist. She's consultant, divisions of anatomic pathology and laboratory genetics, Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, Assistant Professor of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Kerr is going to address the role of the pathologist and importance of diagnostic testing in advanced ovarian cancer. It's my pleasure now to bring Dr. Kerr to you. So, Dr. Kerr. Thank you. Hello. Thank you for inviting me, Carolyn. Uh, it is my great pleasure to be talking to patients today as I'm usually working hidden behind the scenes and, and not dealing directly with, with patients in person. So my job for the next few minutes is to explain what a pathologist does in ovarian cancer care. Now, I'm biased by being a pathologist myself, and I specialize in gynecologic cancer, but I, I want to emphasize that pathologists play an absolutely critical role in your cancer team. Let me talk first by um, talking about what a pathologist does in general. Many of you may be more familiar with the term pathologist in the context of what you see on TV involved in forensic pathology or autopsy pathology in the setting of criminal investigations. And autopsy is an important part of a pathologist's training, but few of us actually practice medicine in, in that setting that you see on those popular crime shows. On the contrary, uh, most pathologists go to medical school just like your other doctors but then choose to receive specialized residency and subspecialty training in a clinical laboratory setting. And this is, it's important to note that this isn't research laboratory, it's clinical testing that occurs in, in a clinical laboratory associated with your doctor's office or hospital. So this specialized training in clinical laboratory testing lasts a minimum of three years after medical school and can run as long as seven or more years depending on uh, the degree of subspecialization. After this training, a, a pathologist typically oversees a variety of tests that are done in the clinical laboratory, including things that are considered pathology or surgical pathology or specimens that are tissues as well as, as um, other things like blood tests and genetic testing. So this can be anything from routine blood tests to examining small tissue biopsies and body fluids to sectioning and examining the large amounts of tissue that are typically removed during an operation for ovarian cancer. And this is why your pathologist is so important to your cancer care. As studies have found that up to 80% of clinical decisions are based on laboratory test results, including pathology reports. Now, let's talk specifically about what a pathologist does for ovarian cancer care. Ovarian cancer patients may initially have a small biopsy of tissue or have fluid removed from the abdomen to be examined by a pathologist to confirm the diagnosis of cancer and ensure that the disease suspected is likely to be arising in the ovary rather than another organ such as the intestines. Um, alternatively, an ovarian mass might be removed in its entirety for this diagnosis with or without other organs to determine the extent of spread of the cancer. A full staging procedure, or what's called a tumor debulking, is often done to remove as much of the cancer tissue as possible. Um, fluid or tissue specimens are then examined by a pathologist under a microscope to more preci precisely classify the tumor. And so final classification may depend also upon special studies, such as what we call immunostains or special stains, or even DNA testing on the tumor. A wide variety of tumors can grow in the ovaries, so figuring out the type of tumor is very important to determining the predicted behavior of the cancer and the treatment that is expected to work for a particular type of cancer. 
the amount of time I have today is too brief to um, give you a full description of each cancer type, but the most common type of cancer in patients listening to this conference is called high-grade serous carcinoma. High-grade serous carcinoma, in most cases, is now interestingly thought to start as a tiny tumor in the fallopian tubes, which are right next to the ovaries, but then it spreads early to the ovaries to grow into a larger tumor before spreading onto other surfaces in the pelvis and abdomen. Um, High-grade serous carcinoma can occur in hereditary breast and ovarian cancer families associated with heritable BRCA mutations, as Sarah Ewing will later describe. But these can also occur in non-familiar, in non-familial forms in which BRCA and other types of mutations occur in the tumor, but not other normal cells in the patient's body. There are many other types of ovarian cancer uh, that are very different from high-grade serous carcinoma. Uh, some of these include low-grade serous carcinoma, what are called borderline tumors, mucinous carcinoma, endometrioid carcinoma, and clear cell carcinoma, just to name a few. Uh, and, th and then there are also some rare ovarian tumors um, that are uh, called sex cord stromal tumors, which, which encompasses a variety of um, specific diagnoses as well as germ cell tumors. And so making the correct diagnosis is important because this pathologic diagnosis is really the basis of the personalized treatment recommendations that are made by your cancer team. Your cancer doctors often interact with pathologists at multidisciplinary tumor boards to discuss your diagnosis and situation. So oncologists, surgeons, radiologists, and pathologists review your case and put together a recommendation for your care. Now, finally, uh, because I get a lot of questions about this topic, I just want to touch on the pathologist's role in second opinions for ovarian cancer care. Unfortunately, even after extensive training and certification, a pathologist's ability to classify a tumor under a microscope is not entirely perfect. So in difficult cases, we do show the tissue to other pathologists or even uh, people that are considered world experts in the field to determine the most appropriate diagnosis for the tumor. So just like other cancer doctors may disagree about what the best treatment is for your cancer, pathologists can also sometimes disagree about a tumor diagnosis. And this difference can really have a big impact on what treatment is recommended. And so I strongly encourage you to talk to your cancer doctors about second opinions in pathology as they often have a very good sense of when a second opinion on the diagnosis may be helpful in their recommendations to you. So with that, I hope I've given you a good explanation of the role of pathologists in your cancer care. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kerr. That was outstanding, and you gave a very excellent explanation. Thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. It's so unique, actually, on the calls to have a pathologist present. And I have to say that Dr. Kerr is actually our, I'm going to say, resident um, kind of on, um, pathologist. Um, she's not a resident, but she's a regular pathologist on our calls. And we were, it really took us a long time to find her, so we're very grateful to have her on the call. So thank you. And our next speaker is uh, Ms. Ewing, and Ms. Ewing is a, uh, Sarah Ewing, is a genetic, uh, certified genetic counselor, Department of Clinical Genomics, Mayo Clinic, and Ms. Ewing is going to be addressing the role of the genetic counselor and how BRCA testing may impact your care. And it's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Ewing. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very happy to be a part of this event. So I'll be discussing genetic counseling and genetic testing and how this can play a role in ovarian cancer care. So before being referred to genetics, I think many people may be unfamiliar with what genetic counseling is and what genetic testing is all about. So to give you some background on that, genetic counseling is a process to evaluate and understand a family's risk of an inherited medical condition. As genetic counselors, we have specialized training in medical genetics and counseling, and we work in a variety of different areas of medicine, including cancer. 
So when we consider the genetics of ovarian cancer, the majority of ovarian cancers actually do not have an inherited or genetic cause. So it's thought that up to about 20% of invasive ovarian cancers do have an underlying genetic cause. And this is when an ovarian cancer occurs because of what is known as a gene mutation that's passed down through the generations within a family, causing an increased risk for certain types of cancers. So it's important to identify those who do have a hereditary cause of their ovarian cancer because this can have a significant impact on the care of an ovarian cancer patient as well as their families. The two most common causes of hereditary ovarian cancer are the genes known as BRCA1 and BRCA2, which are sometimes called the BRCA genes. Our genes are like our body's instruction manual. Each gene has a specific function or job that it's meant to perform within our bodies. We have two copies of every single gene that we have, and we have one copy inherited from our mother and one copy inherited from our father. So the BRCA, the BRCA genes, help control cell growth and DNA repair. So these functions actually work to prevent cancer from developing. It's when a person inherits a mutation in either BRCA1 or BRCA2 from their mother or their father that this gene does not work properly. A mutation is almost like a spelling mistake or an error within that gene. Women with a BRCA1 or 2 gene mutation do have a significantly elevated risk for ovarian cancer as well as breast cancer, and men with a BRCA1 or 2 gene mutation have an elevated risk for male breast cancer and prostate cancer. Families with a BRCA1 or 2 gene mutation will often have multiple relatives diagnosed with early onset or young breast cancer and ovarian cancer through several generations. There are other genes we know about today in addition to BRCA1 and 2 that also cause a hereditary risk for ovarian cancer, but again, BRCA1 and 2 are the most common causes. We also assume that there are ovarian cancer risk genes that haven't been discovered yet, meaning that some families may have a mutation in an unknown gene that would be undetectable by today's genetic testing standards. So genetic testing is performed through a blood draw. A specialized genetics laboratory examines or reads through the genes associated with hereditary ovarian cancer to determine if a mutation is present. Genetic testing can be done for BRCA1 and 2 only or for multiple genes at once through what is known as a multi-gene panel test. So if an individual has genetic testing and tests positive for a mutation in a gene, what does this mean? If a mutation is found in BRCA1 or BRCA2 or another gene, this means that the cancer does have an underlying genetic or inherited cause. This can sometimes influence ovarian cancer treatment, as has been mentioned in a couple different ways so far by our other speakers. So there is a specific class of chemotherapy drugs known as PARP inhibitors that are available for individuals with ovarian cancer and a BRCA1 or 2 gene mutation that have proven to be effective treatments for these patients in some cases. This information can also be used to guide future management and screening for both patients and their families, such as earlier and more frequent screening and consideration of preventative surgeries. If a gene mutation is identified, genetic testing can also be very helpful for other relatives to understand their risk for cancer and to make sure that they are being screened appropriately. Relatives of a person with a BRCA1 or 2 gene mutation or a mutation in another gene have a chance of also carrying this mutation. Both men and women are equally likely to carry a mutation. Those who do not inherit the mutation cannot pass it on to their children. It's important to know that having a gene mutation causes a higher likelihood to develop cancer, but does not mean that a person will definitely develop cancer over their lifetime. Ovarian cancer is a vast subject and it's growing rapidly. The National Comprehensive Cancer Network does recommend that any individual with a personal or family history of ovarian cancer meet with a genetic counselor to discuss their options. 
A genetic counselor can help you decide whether genetic testing is right for you or for someone in your family. We can help coordinate genetic testing, interpretation of your results, and help make recommendations for patients and their families. You can find a genetic counselor in your area by visiting the National Society of Genetic Counselors website at nsgc.org slash find a genetic counselor. Thank you so much. And would you repeat that, Ashley, one more time, just so everybody can yep, write no that down? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep, it's nsgc.org slash find a genetic counselor. And we also will be sending out to everybody on the call this resource as well. And the organization is called the National Society of Genetic Counselors. Is that correct? Yes, that okay. is. Yep. Okay. Super. Excellent call. Um, that was um, really outstanding. Um, Ms. Ewing, I really appreciate your being on this call. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well, so thank you. And our final speaker is Ms. Sarah Kelly. Ms. Kelly is an oncology social worker. Um, she is um, program coordinator here at Cancer Care, and she will be discussing Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure to turn this program over to my colleague and friend at Cancer Care, uh, Ms. Sarah Kelly. Thank you, Dr. Messner. As uh, Dr. Messner said, I'm an oncology social worker here at Cancer Care, and I work with many people who are diagnosed with ovarian cancer and their loved ones. You know, we've been talking today about managing your care and really about quality of life. So I'd like to talk about the importance of creating a support network as part of your care and really part of a way of improving uh, your quality of life in this and also how cancer care can be a part of that. So just a little bit about us. We're a national nonprofit organization. We provide free professional support services to anyone who is affected by cancer. Our programs include individual counseling. We do that face-to-face in the New York area and then over the phone nationally. We have support groups, which we also provide face-to-face in New York, over the phone nationally, and online nationally and internationally. We have education programs like the one we're on today. We also provide practical help, so assistance navigating uh, certain aspects of the healthcare system. We provide some limited financial assistance as well. All of our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers, and they're completely free of charge. And an oncology social worker really is trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her support network, so his or her family and friends, the loved ones. Um, We're also trained to help patients and their supports tackle the problems that accompany the disease, so financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and overall uh, psychological impact and care. And I find that adjusting to and finding ways of coping with the diagnosis and all the areas I just mentioned is an important part of the healing process, and I actually consider it to be part of treatment. You know, as you know, cancer affects the whole person. Um, You know, it doesn't affect just one body part. And it also uh, affects the whole support network, so that's the family and friends also. Asking for help, um, joining a support group, contacting a social worker for counseling can be so helpful and is actually a huge sign of strength. Uh, Dr. Vonner Hendrickson said something earlier that really resonated with me, which is, you know, if if you don't tell the medical team what's happening, they're not going to know. And that really is across the board. You know, someone's not going to know if you don't tell them. And it's important um, that you're heard. It's important that your needs are heard and met. So just know that, you know, you do not have to do this alone. If you're joining a support group, you're connecting with others who are going through similar situations or experiencing similar problems. With individual counseling, you really have a space that's yours to voice the concerns that are coming up and navigate uh, any of the issues I mentioned earlier. And these connections can also just help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. And feeling well emotionally helps. Um, it can help you better deal with the diagnosis. And again, I do consider uh, that help to be a part of treatment. So I'm going to talk um, just a little bit about what we have right now. Um, so currently, we are offering face-to-face patient groups, and that's in the New York area, as well as a caregiver support group. Over the phone, we have a patient group, a caregiver group, and then online, we have general patient groups and caregiver groups. We also have a great um, support group for patients who are diagnosed with ovarian cancer. So that's on our online support group. 
Um, if you're interested in any of those services or any of the programs, please call us. You know, you can reach us on our HOPE line, which is 1-800-813-HOPE or 1-800-813-4673, or you can visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And our website, um, you'll find it's very comprehensive. There's a lot of information, not only on support, but on all of our programs, as well as on your diagnosis and treatment and just ways of coping as you go through this. We've learned a lot from today's program. You know, there's a lot of information to digest and get your arms around. Just know we're here. Um, we're here to help you understand what it means for you and your loved ones. And if you have any questions about today's workshop or about our services, don't hesitate to contact us. And I just um, would like to leave you again with uh, remembering that you're not alone in this, um, that it is really important to share what's happening for you. And there are people who want to listen and want to be there for you. Our services are here to help. Thanks so much for your attention and the opportunity to talk today. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Sarah. That was outstanding and a wonderful review of all the services that people can access. And now we have time for questions. We actually have a lot of time for questions. So I'm going to ask um, Ayala to bring all of our speakers on board. And actually, we're going to, uh, she will explain to you how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And uh, if we don't get to your questions, I will give you information about how to get your questions answered um, at the end of the call. But, um, I see some questions already coming in, so um, let's just uh, take the questions then. Um, so Ayala, if you could bring all the speakers on board, and then if you could explain to everybody how to queue up the questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If at any time your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question is from Stephanie Kay. Your line is now open. Yes, thank you so much, and Carol and Dr. Mestre, excellent seminar. Thank you so much. I have two questions. I am a breast cancer survivor, but I did have a family history of breast and ovarian cancer. I did take the BRCA test and the BART test, which were both negative. My question is uh, the CA125 blood test that's been recommended that I had is not covered by my Medicare health insurance, and the doctor won't, does not under, they don't understand why. And he, they were saying the insurance said it's not accurate to CA125. My question is why is it not accurate uh, since I wanted to get that yearly, but I'm not allowed to. I get the transvaginal ultrasounds, which they say are more accurate externally, not internally due to sciatica. And also I'd like to know more about the other testing that we have besides the BRCA and BART. Are there other tests since if you have a family history of breast and ovarian cancer? Thank you. I'm, I'm her too, breast cancer survivor. Thank you so much. Thank you, and thanks for that question and your comments, Stephanie. Um, I'm going to ask, uh, probably, probably a lot of the questions, speakers may want to address this. I'm going to start with Dr. Runowitz in terms of this particular uh, test. And also there's another question that is kind of coming out online, which is kind of linked to it. Is there a link between breast cancer and ovarian cancer? So um, it's kind of, if you could kind of address those in general, Dr. Um, uh, sure. Dr. Runowitz. So, Stephanie, thanks for bringing up this important topic. So to address first the CA125, CA125, um, if you have ovarian cancer, is very specific and very sensitive if it's elevated, and you can monitor it for response to treatment and to detect a recurrent disease. However, in the general population, it has not been shown to be sensitive um, enough to pick up early ovarian cancer, and there's also a pickup in uh, breast cancer and endometriosis if you have your periods. So the CA125 um, is often elevated, but there's not ovarian cancer. So for that reason, insurance companies have not um, approved it for payment, including Medicare. The transvaginal sonogram um, is another tool um, which is useful. However, again, it has false positives where you pick up ovarian cysts and it's not ovarian cancer, but it may result in, in unnecessary surgery. So unfortunately, there are no good screening tests that we have for ovarian cancer. Um, you mentioned the genetic testing. 
And uh, it's clear that um, genetic testing for the BRCA1, BRCA2 mutation is indicated um, once one sees a genetic counselor, as you heard, and one has the, the um, genealogy or the pedigree mapped out. There are other um, mutations that can occur, for example, the RAD50 the RAD51C, um, ATM, which can increase your risk of breast and ovarian cancer. And these are done um, usually on a next-generation sequencer. Uh, so that may be available. Um, and usually you try to test a person who's had the cancer. So um, it's, a, it's a complicated issue, and if you haven't seen a genetic counselor, um, and gone into a comprehensive genetic counseling program, I would really recommend that you do. Um, and if you have a relative with ovarian cancer or with breast cancer, have them tested because that will be very useful information. Excellent. And, and I would certainly that? second that. I'm sorry, this is yes. Sarah from Genetics. Yes. Thank yes. you. I would yes. certainly second what Dr. Runkowitz just elaborated on, that there are other genes beyond BRCA1 and 2 that we can now test for on expanded gene panels. So if a patient has had BRCA1 and 2 testing in the past that was negative, I would encourage you to follow up with your physicians about being referred back to genetics to revisit that subject and think about additional gene testing. And as Dr. Runkowitz mentioned, the ideal candidate to start that genetic testing process for the family is always that person who's affected with ovarian cancer. Excellent. Um, and um, uh, we have a question from one of our online participants. Uh, so this is from um, actually, um, well, here's a, we have actually a couple of questions here now. Um, so it's a question. Um, I'm going to ask Dr. Vonner Hendrickson if you could address this question. Would a preventive vaccine after successful debulking surgery of low-grade serious adenocarcinoma with involvement in one lymph node in the right pelvic region be of any use in preventing recurrence? Complicated question. <laughs> yeah, so is the, is the question, is there a preventive vaccine? Yes. I guess it's would a preventive vaccine, I guess, yes, after successful, it's an interesting, it's true. Would a preventive vaccine after successful debulking surgery of low-grade CSEOUS adenocarcinoma with mm -hmm. involvement in one lift node in the right pelvic region be of any use in screening, in preventing recurrence? Okay. So I think the overall um, question is you know the kind of talking about prevent or vaccines, and so um, I am not aware of a particular vaccine that's available um, you know for preventive uh, purposes. Again, I think when we think of preventive, we think of before the cancer has occurred. There's a lot of interest in this field where we've gone through you know the debulking surgery, we've removed everything, we've maybe done the chemotherapy there's no disease left, how can we reduce the chances of it coming back? And so this is a, an area there's a lot of interest in trying to develop vaccines in this field. There are some clinical trials out there that are looking at that, looking at targeting different um, markers on the cancer uh, cells to see if we can come up with a vaccine that could possibly prevent um, the cancer from coming back. So that is an area of interest. At this point, all of these studies are kind of in development in clinical trials. So again, you know, talking to your physician about options for clinical trials because there are some clinical trials available in this window period, you know, after you kind of complete your first-line therapy, trying to think of ways to reduce the cancer from coming back. And so, but, but these uh, vaccines at this point are still in the kind of experimental phase there's a lot of hope, but there's a lot of promise in that area, um, but it's kind of still essentially done in a clinical trial setting. I hope that answered the question a little bit. Excellent. Thank you. That's excellent. And any, anyone want to add, add to that? Or? Okay. 
And is there a preventive vaccine? You may have actually answered that question, but is there a preventive vaccine for ovarian cancer, or is that in clinical trials? Or It's in clinical trials. Clinical trials, okay. And can you say where that is in clinical trials, where along the way it is? or uh, Very early. Very early. There are some treatments that um, have been have ex- have extended what we call the disease-free interval, and bevacizumab, the anti-angiogenesis agent, um, in patients who have had advanced ovarian cancer, has shown to um, prolong the amount of time before the disease recurs. So there are some preventive treatments out there. The PARP inhibitors are another group. Um, so it is an emerging field. Excellent. So we have our um, participants on this call who are really on the cusp of um, asking really such great questions. Um, and we have another question actually for Ms. Ewing, actually. Um, so the question for Ms. Ewing is, um, um, are you available for speaking uh, to professional <laughs> organizations or student groups um, in our classes on genetic counseling anywhere in the U.S.? So I... Um, so this is, uh, and this often comes up in our program, so I wondered if you want to comment on that, Ms. Ewing, and just let the audience know how they can get speakers in different parts of the country and where you are and all that. Sure, sure. So as genetic counselors, we are always happy to kind of spread the word on what genetic counseling is, just to kind of promote awareness of the field. I would say probably your best bet finding somebody locally would, again, be through that findageneticcounselor.org. So you can type in, essentially you type in your zip code, and it brings up a list of genetic counselors in your area. And then underneath each individual, it lists if they welcome student contact and all kinds of different services services that they provide. So I'd say probably the best way to find speakers locally in that regard would be through the NSGC website, and it does have the contact information of those individuals listed as well. And I guess since we're on that subject, we probably should think about all the other speakers. So in terms of the pathologist, um, uh, so um, that's excellent. So it's a good question. I might as well just apply to everyone. So Dr. Kerr, if people wanted to have um, a pathologist present to professional organizations, student groups, or classes, is there a national organization that they could go to for that? Because it, it isn't easy to find. Like we, we went through a lot to try to find you, and we're very grateful to have you on the call. But um, how does one, if one were in some other part of the country, how would one access a pathologist or at the local institution that they're practicing in or the closest hospital? How would they do that? Yeah, sure. So um, I've actually done a little bit of speaking. I actually spoke at a genetic counselor's meeting several years ago, and that was a really fun interaction for me. But I would say in general, our big organization for pathology is the United States and Canadian Academy of Pathology, or USCAP. And you can go to that website at uscap.org. Um, and that's that's our big organization if you want to try to find you know a pathologist to come and speak at any particular forum, they might be able to help you. That's United States, um, and what is the... Um, and Canadian uh, Academy of Pathology. Canadian. Oh, okay. Mm. Okay, so we're going to actually send that out to everybody, too, as you're all writing this down, as we are, so that we can actually <laughs> get that information out to everybody, because that's what, these are important. And also, the same for our, um, actually, our... Um, our um, medical oncologist, so uh, Dr. Runner, so Dr. Runner Hendrickson, if there's an organization that you would like to recommend if people wanted to get a local, um, for example, excellent, uh, uh, you know, um, medical oncologist who treats people with ovarian, advanced ovarian cancer, where would they, is there a group that they would go to for that as well? For GYN oncology, gynecologic oncology, there's the Society of Gynecologic Oncology and if you go onto that website, you can get a list of, um, you put your zip code in and you can get a list of the GYN oncologists in your area. And, and I think that's really important, especially uh, not, not only for speaking at meetings, but um, especially if you've been diagnosed or your physician tells you that you might have ovarian cancer. I would say get the two, and, and even though I'm a G1 oncologist and it sounds like it's self-serving, honestly, the data shows is much better for a high-volume gynecologic oncologist performing your surgery rather than an OBGYN or a general surgeon. Yeah, and I will second that. As a medical oncologist, I would also <laughs> say at diagnosis, we definitely recommend that everybody meet with a gynecologic oncologist to, to discuss the surgical procedure and have it, um, 
have it done by a gynecologic oncologist at a tertiary center. So I second that. Um, in terms of looking at medical oncology, the big national organization here is the American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO. It does also include gynecologic oncologists, radiation oncologists, but they're a good resource as well to help you um, connect with, with local um, oncologists. Excellent. And also, I'm going to ask um, Ashley and Ms. Kelly in terms of oncology social workers as well. What if someone wanted to have someone come and speak to them about um, what oncology social workers, how they could help, what they could do, um, and that would help? Um, could you say something about that? Where they where they should call? <laughs> yeah. So if you're if you're looking for an oncology social worker to come and speak, um, definitely you can always contact us. You know, we're here and available. If you're looking for someone uh, more locally in your area, we're based in New York, so if you're looking for someone locally, definitely I think you could contact the Association of Oncology Social Work to help you locate someone. And that's um, so www.aosw.org, or you can contact Cancer Care, because our social workers here, of course, are would be able to refer you as well, um, www.aosw.org. Cancercare.org. Okay, this is a good question because actually, um, as Dr. Runowitz, as all of you have implied, actually, that's not just to get a speaker, but it's also to get state-of-the-art care and service. Um, so, and also to sometimes get a second opinion around your care, or just to be aware that the, who is who's who are the important people to see. So that's really in your in your area. That's very helpful, also for anyone on the call who's just really uh, struggling. I, no one has asked, but often people do ask about, like, what what do I do if I need a second opinion? And, so actually, what about that, Dr. Rana, what's the second opinion issue? Because that always is such a big issue for people in terms of um, seeking a second opinion. And, um, um, yeah, I, I think it's really important that you get a second opinion. Um, so, for example, if you go to your obstetrician-gynecologist and uh, he or she recommends surgery, go and find a GYN oncologist um, and then not only get a second opinion but transfer your care. And then if you're under the care of a medical oncologist or a GYN oncologist and your disease recurs or it's not responding anymore to the treatment regimen, it's okay to take a breath, find out what's available, get second opinions, learn about clinical trials. It's never an emergency that you have to get treatment the next day. You have time to research the options, speak with the experts, and, and figure out sort of a pathway, uh, multiple, once the disease recurs, it's going to keep recurring, and what you try to do is increase your disease-free interval by kind of serially positioning those treatments, and you can get knocked out of a clinical trial if you do too many what I call street drugs, drugs that are available off of clinical trials that have been approved. So I think it's very important to get a second opinion, and no doctor, um, in my opinion, should ever resent or not take care of you because you went for a second opinion. And could you redefine the street drugs? Because I think people often have a different definition of what you mean by that in the oncology field because that's important, and we really don't talk about that enough. Uh, I'm sorry. I missed the first part. Say the, that again. The, the concept of um, street drugs. Um, oh, no, the concept. <laughs> so street drugs. Yeah, the street drugs are not like the drugs you think about, the Percocets or the narcotics, but the street drugs that I use for my patients are the drugs that are commercially available. So the carboplatins, the gemcitabines, the paclitaxels, all the drugs that have been approved by the FDA that any practicing physician who's experienced in chemotherapy can administer. And also, um, there are times, <clears throat> I'm sorry, there are times when actually um, it is useful to take um, some palliative care medicine. Um, so, Dr. Um, Varna Hendrickson, could you comment on that? And James, there are times when a palliative care, one may have pain and may require um, a prescription medication. So, is that correct as well? <clears throat> yep. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember when we talk about palliative care, it does not mean that we are not also doing treatment to, to address the cancer. So you can have a palliative care team, you can be seeing a palliative care physician and also getting chemotherapy. So they are not absolutely not mutually exclusive. Um, so some people, when they hear the word palliative care, they think, oh, does that mean that my cancer is really bad and I need a special doctor? No, it's just a, 
um, a field that really helps with uh, symptom management. And with symptom management, you know, the cancer itself can cause pain, the treatments can cause pain, the side effects can cause pain. So, yes, um, we do use, you know, for example, narcotics for pain. Um, and we really find we don't run into the same problems with addiction and such when, when there is true pain that needs to be addressed. And so we are very comfortable using these medications. And in the cancer field, it is not true that no, what is it, um, no pain, no gain. We don't want people to suffer unnecessarily with all, all types of cancer. It's a treatment for these discomforts that people have. They don't help you. Um, I think Dr. Verna Hedrickson talked about the need for exercise. If you want to comment on that, if you're in terrible pain, it's sometimes hard to do things. So could you say a word about that as we're about to close? Yeah, that's, just to that's kind of absolutely the case because we do have a lot of women who come in and they um, don't want to use pain medications or they don't like using pills um, and so are, you know, suffering more than than they need to. And the problem is it can have downstream effects because if you're in, you're in pain, you're less likely to, you know, in, engage in some sort of physical activity. You're less likely to eat. Um, and so it can be a little bit of a spiral where if we don't control the pain, you become weaker and then it becomes harder to administer some of the treatments. And so it is important to make sure your pain is under control um, because it does help in the long run. And it's pain and treatment side effects as well, um, that there are many medicines that there's no reason for you to experience some of these uh, difficult side effects that people had historically experienced when being treated for ovarian cancer. Could you just, again, one last comment on that as well? Because it's really important that that issue is for people when they leave a call to realize that. Yes, and I think that's a very good point. One point is that a lot of the side effects that we experience with chemotherapy can be controlled with medications. The other thing that I, I hope you got the sense of in this call is that there are a lot of treatment options, so there's not one right answer, which means if you talk to your healthcare team and say, you know, for example, you know, this and this is really important to me. I need to be at this wedding at this period of time. I don't want to lose my hair at this time. There are chemotherapies that don't um, do hair loss, uh, don't, you know, affect hair loss, or if you say, I, you know, I'm, I'm traveling, I need a treatment that's once every four weeks. When the cancer, when we're talking about recurrent ovarian cancer, there's no one right answer in terms of treatment. And so we can tailor the treatment according to your life as well. So you are a major player in this um, kind of treatment plan. And so if you let your healthcare team know, these are my priorities, these are my goals, we can really work on getting that, you know, the, the right treatment for you. Um, and if there are certain side effects that are really not tolerable for you, we can, you know, try to pick medications that don't have that side effect. So it's just, again, I think the most important thing is really communicating with your healthcare team. Excellent. And on that note, I want to really thank our speakers. They have been phenomenal. So although they can't hear us applauding, we are applauding. They're a multidisciplinary team. They've all given you different perspectives and ways that you can work with your own healthcare team and tips. I hope that you'll be able to use them and incorporate them into your care or, or feel more confident about doing what you're doing already. In addition, I want to thank all of you who've been listening today, all of you who posed questions both on the telephone and online. And I did say I would tell you what to do with questions that we didn't get to you, so I want to just be sure we get that done right away. So if you have any medical questions that you have not yet had answered on this call today, I know there are many of you in queue, um, basically I would suggest that one thing, of course, is your healthcare team, but some of you also like to get information from a reputable source outside of your healthcare team. So I do recommend the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237. That would be a number that you can contact. We'll send you that information as well, or www.cancer.gov, their website, and indeed they have a live chat feature, so you can post your question, and the, there's an information specialist who will back and forth, you'll indicate your question, and you'll have a back and forth dialogue online. So for those of you who prefer that format, and for our international participants, it really works really well to get that kind of um, immediate feedback back and forth um, with um, a live person in terms of the live chat. In addition, um, if you would like to get some of our services that Ms. Kelly described at Cancer Care, you can contact us at Cancer Care at 1-800-813-HOPE or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And as Ms. Kelly had said, of course, we don't want any one of you to leave today's program doing it your alone. 
alone in dealing with advanced ovarian cancer, dealing with any cancer. We want you to know that you're now part of the cancer care world of support, and we want you to know that you can call us, and we, we appreciate your calling us or emailing us for our international participants what your concerns are so that we can be of help to you. Um, everyone who contacts us gets a response, and indeed, whether it be by email, visiting our website and posing a question, or actually calling us on the phone. So um, again, I know that everyone at, mo at various moments in different parts of the country and world feels terribly alone. At those moments, do call us. But you can call us before that happens, just when things are kind of feeling okay, just to touch base. It's okay to do that as well. So I want to thank you all for your participation today. I do want to remind you that we have a, an interesting program coming up. It's a five-part series. It's called Life with Cancer. A Guide to Getting the Best Care. And the first of the five-part series is tomorrow, um, which is actually on May 3rd, and it's the same time frame as this call. And the call is called Trends in Oncology and Treatment Planning, What You Need to Know. I think you'll find it an interesting call, and there's a, it's a whole series on all the different topics that would be interesting to you, and it's from May until June. So there's a whole uh, cadre of programs that you can choose from, and uh, so there's more to come, in other words, that you can listen to. Again, I want to thank you for your participation today. And I do want to mention one other call that we are doing, actually, because I think it's particularly relevant. On Monday, May 22nd, we're doing a program called Preventing Chemotherapy-Induced Nausea and Vomiting. So for any of you who are concerned about this side effect and having issues with it, that might be an interesting call for you to sign up for as well. So you'll be getting all this information from us, and of course, you can feel free to sign up for them. Again, thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your part participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.